What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post, and I am back with really, really big news. As you know, Rob Mahoney, uh, he filled in ably for weeks as co-host, but he is on to uh, his next job with The Ringer. And I have now officially reached Rob's replacement. His name, Michael Pina of SB Nation. Michael, first of all, thank you so much for joining. Second of all, we kept this under wraps pretty well, didn't it? Isn't this a great secret for the entire world here on this uh, beautiful Tuesday podcast? I've actually already told everybody I know, uh, so not so much of a secret. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, no, thank you so much for the opportunity, um, and uh, I'm really excited to to discuss, analyze, and argue about the NBA with you, Ben. Well, look, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I don't know, 2015, I loved it. Beautiful sunshine. Everything's going great. I'm walking down the street in Santa Monica. Next thing I do, I turn the corner. There's a well-dressed millennial hipster just throwing tomato <laughs> cans at me. And it actually was you. And you were so upset about some slander, apparently, that I had put out there about Isaiah Thomas not being an MVP candidate uh, that you confronted me in the street. I think we probably argued for what, between 30 and 40 minutes. And so what we're going to try to do here uh, going forward is to recapture that dynamic. Two crazy people on the corner of Santa Monica screaming about basketball topics. What do you think? That sounds perfect. I really appreciate you uh, commending me sartorially. I, I, I Saying that I was well-dressed, I'm glad you remember my outfit. Hey, look, I might be painting you as a crazy person, but at least you're a well-dressed <laughs> crazy person. That's what really matters. Uh, hey, Michael, so for people who don't know, you are currently based in Brooklyn, New York, and you do a lot of coverage uh, out of there. You've also lived in Los Angeles previously um, and Boston as well, I believe. So your range of experience here covering the NBA is pretty deep. And I'll be honest, you know, the last month or two, it's been a lot of West Coast bias on this podcast, okay? Both Rob and I are these, you know, coastal elitists out here in California. I'm in this LA fishbowl where it's like every single night it's a different show from these superstars. So I think one of the most valuable things you're going to bring to the table uh, is going to be, you know, that that East Coast, Eastern Conference perspective. And I know you're going to st uh, stick up, if possible, uh, for what I like to call the AAA uh, but I think the other thing that you're really great at is you cut against the grain. You don't go with the group think. You're often able to find angles that uh, you know maybe other writers uh, either ignore or just never think about. So I encourage all the open floor listeners out there, uh, you know, embrace Michael in that spirit. He will poke. He will prod. He might throw some tomato cans, but he will get you thinking about the NBA. And uh, on that note, I'd like to just dig right in because I know. You followed the, the Celtics carefully for a long time. They are a huge story. Now, they did come out and drop one to Sacramento, I think, uh, ending their 10-game winning streak here over the weekend. Uh, but they're sitting on the top of the Eastern Conference. They've got one of the NBA's very best offenses, a top-10 defense. I'm sure you're already planning you know, to unveil a statue for Brad Stevens in, in downtown Boston at some point. So, Michael, I need your help explaining exactly why the Celtics are as good as they are. And here's a question from John to kick us off. He emailed openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. He writes, I was so thr thrilled to see my first Celtics game live this year, and what a difference a year makes. Last year, I just watched a miserable team, a parade of bad body language, lose to the hapless Phoenix Suns at home. 
This year, it was surreal. Kemba won a fourth quarter shootout against Luka Doncic. Not only was Kemba making big shots, he never got down on Jason Tatum, who was actually historically horrible from the floor in that game. Good leadership from Kemba, and they responded to adversity because it was a one game after losing Gordon Hayward to the hand injury. What's next for the Celtics, and what is their ceiling? So, Michael, this is a question I want to throw to you. Can Boston win the East this year? Is that their ceiling, or what do you view as Boston's ceiling? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think, as you, you touched upon, their offense has been sizzling. Uh, Kemba Walker's fit has been pretty seamless so far, and we've seen growth from Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. Uh, despite Tatum not finishing at the rim, he's averaging about 20 points per game and looking like the perennial all-star that a lot of people thought he would be out of, after his rookie season. Um, I mean... Big picture, just looking at the Eastern Conference, what you like to refer to as AAA. Uh, you know, we've seen a, a Philadelphia 76ers team struggle a little bit out of the gate, which is only natural, I think, given the change in their roster. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks look like a complete, you know, they look like a monster. Um, but besides that, there has been no team that's really stepped out and been super impressive besides Boston. And I mean, I guess you could throw the Toronto Raptors and the Miami Heat in that conversation. But I think Boston has, you know, beyond their record, played just a different style, not a different style, but they've played with a lot more aggression, I think, from a lot of their key players. Guys like Brown, guys like Tatum have expanded their roles. They're attacking the basket a lot more. They're getting to the free throw line. Uh, uh, One big difference, just, you know, I don't want to turn this into a Kyrie Irving bashing session, but one key on-court difference between Kemba and Kyrie is that, you know, Kemba is... He's more uh, Mori ball friendly. Uh, you know, he avoids long twos. 50% of his shots have been behind the three-point line this season, and he's drilling them. He's very uh, eager to get those shots up off high screens, off flares. That's something that Kyrie would not really engage in as often. And so when you have someone who is attacking the rim, getting to the free throw line like Kemba is, uh, it just kind of opened things up for everybody else. And to say nothing of you know how well Gordon Hayward was playing has been was playing before he broke his hand, uh, you know, a lot of things are just working right right now for the Celtics. Yeah, they got good uh, good momentum out of the gate. Definitely a good vibe, as the emailer mentioned, as you mentioned. Is it as simple for guys like uh, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum? Does this really just boil back to the the transition from Kyrie to Kemba. I mean, I understand that might be like a little bit low-hanging fruit, and we've got this one incredible Kyrie fan who listens to Tariq, and Tariq's already typing his email out because he's so frustrated <laughs> at us going at Kyrie. But, I mean, I don't know how we avoid it, right? Like, these guys played very well the postseason when Kyrie was out a couple years ago. The chemistry everybody realized was just kind of off or not right uh, last year. There was warning signs to me in both Brown and Tatum's offensive approach because um, the shot selection really wasn't desirable for either one of those guys. I know everyone wants to blame Kobe Bryant for Tatum's shot selection. I mean, come on, okay, let's let's not go overboard there. And then with Brown, it just seemed like he was really kind of pigeonholed in, into a certain type of approach on offense that, uh, you know, to me was looked like it had a pretty low ceiling for him as a player. Now you fast forward to this season, 
And both those guys are back in that, you know, rosier glow of, hey, wait a minute, they can actually do a lot on offense. They can get to the basket. Uh, you know, Tatum, I, I do think uh, will finish better as the as the year goes on. At least I hope so. It can't finish much worse. Uh, but again, the mentality is right. And it translates to, you know, more team offense when everybody's kind of bought in there. So does all this just boil down from the Kemba to Kyrie transition? Is that what we trace all these things back to? I think that's a little unfair to Kyrie. I think it is a factor on and off the court. There are a lot of things that we can't we can't really measure with the change. You know, you go from someone who's a bit of a mercurial personality uh, who did not mesh with a few guys in that locker room who acted who took his, you know, uh, he his championship experience and was at times reportedly talking down to players on his own team, uh, younger guys who had, as you said, gone to the Eastern Conference Finals the year before when he was hurt. Um, and then you bring in Kemba, who, you know, he was thrilled that Mark Jackson was calling his game on Friday night against the Golden State Warriors. Like, he has, he's a veteran, but he has not experienced anything close to the 10-game win streak that the team was just on before they lost in Sacramento. Like, he's very excited to be there. He's very appreciative. He values this experience in a way that I don't think Kyrie could, and I think that everybody else on the team feeds off of that. Uh, that being said, look, Tatum was 20 years old last season. Uh, you know, Jalen Brown was in his third year coming off the bench most of the year. Um, Jalen Brown just got paid a massive contract. You know, I think it's a lot of natural growth for those two players particular in particular. And it's only right to expect them to bounce back from the year that they just had. Um, you know, uh, Gordon Hayward, again, his he was a year removed from uh, a gruesome injury. Last season, he, he just could not find rhythm. He could not find aggression uh, or any consistency whatsoever. Uh, and then from the start, he's just moving so much better than he had all of last season before he hurt himself, playing incredible basketball, all-star level basketball. Uh, so I think that those are factors that need to be in play here. But, you know, the way Kyrie does play... Uh, where he dribble, dribble, dribbles in, you know, a, a little bit of a, uh, I don't want to say selfish, but that's just kind of how he meanders around and, and everyone uh, has the, to the, the phrase we use is ball dominant. That's the, the nice way to say selfish. You just say ball dominant and then everybody kind of just, you know, <laughs> winks and nods and, and agrees. But look, you, you go over to Brooklyn's offense. They're basically middle of the pack. You look at their record below average. Of course, there's going to be, you know, I think some philosophical stuff to work out there in Brooklyn where, you know, they're playing one way last year and Kyrie plays how Kyrie wants to play. And it doesn't really matter where you're dropping him. He's going to play that same style. And I completely believe they, they've they earned the right to have a little patience there. But it hasn't been that smooth of a start. Um, and I do think that, you know, when you're looking at their, <clears throat> their record, their team offense, it's a real question. Is Kyrie making his teammates better? Is he putting his most important complementary pieces in positions to succeed uh, based on the style of play that he prefers, um, which he's very, very good at? But again, is he going to be able to elevate everyone in that style to be you know, kind of a championship team? I think that's still an open question. We've seen it now in multiple different locations. And the start to this season has confirmed a lot of concerns, I think, on both sides, both from Boston's early success uh, and Brooklyn's early struggles. 
When we look at uh, Boston's schedule, I think one reason why I might be a little bit hesitant to kind of crown these guys as a team that can win the East, I mean, there's some soft wins in here, right? I mean, you're looking at New York twice, Cleveland, Charlotte, uh, you know, even Dallas to a certain degree. San Antonio hasn't played well, Washington, uh, and, and the Warriors, which is, you know, now basically the softest win in the league, which is kind of crazy to say, but it's true. I'm not sure they're as good as their record. Uh, and I think I'm not sure their offense is as good as it seems right now based on some of those opponents. I think it's going to come back to earth just slightly. But having said that, they're still definitely better than I expected this season. Um, is there a trade that needs to happen, right? Like, are, are they a team that they can talk themselves after, say, a strong start in the opening month or the first couple of months of the season to actually be buyers this year? You know, are they like one player away from really, you know, pushing a team like the Milwaukee Bucks. Because if I look at a, you know, a playoff matchup between Milwaukee and uh, Boston, that's not going well for Boston. That might be four or five games. Uh, And I realize I'm coming at that from the Giannis Inc. perspective, but who's guarding him, right? And we saw what happened last year. I thought their personnel to handle Giannis was better in last year's playoffs than it would be currently. Um, and yet, you know, they really struggled as that series unfolded to kind of keep their defensive game plan together. And ultimately they got overwhelmed. So I don't know. Do you agree with me on that head to head matchup between Milwaukee and Boston? And, and do you think there's a trade out there that could swing this further in Boston's favor? Well, we're, we're like 10 games into the season, but I will say that the Celtics no longer have Kyrie Irving to switch on to Giannis, uh, in, in a potential playoff series. So <laughs> That works in their favor. Um. <laughs> Wait, so you're saying Kemba's not going to break the entire defensive game plan and try to put it on his own shoulders uh, as the series unfolds? That doesn't seem like his M.O. from everything we know about him, no. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I think Milwaukee is still uh, a better basketball team with the better player by a mile in, in Giannis. Uh, I think they'll miss Brogdon in the playoffs this year. They don't really have as much play creation as they did in the past. Um, he brought a lot to the table for them. Uh, but uh, to answer your question about a trade, it's really difficult for this Celtics team, I think, to not grow with what they have. And they just don't have a lot of sexy contracts that are able to be uh, you know, finagled into deals. You have a, 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 a contract like Marcus Smart's that you don't want to trade Marcus Smart because of everything that he brings to the table for you. Um, but, you know, positionally what they need, you know, they're getting killed on the glass so far. As you said earlier, you know, their schedule has been pretty not I mean, pretty easy. Uh, I think it's fifth easiest by ESPN's RPI rankings. Um, what I would like to see potentially, uh, even though it'll be very difficult to actually execute, is a deal for someone like Derek Favors, someone like Tristan Thompson, a big on an expiring contract who does not need the basketball, who protects the rim, uh, who rebounds, who takes up space on defense, who's really smart on that end, uh, who can switch a tiny little bit. Uh, that's the kind of player that they're missing. They had him last year in Aaron Baines, and you know Aaron Baines has flourished into an MVP candidate in Phoenix. Um, and that's just that's what they need, I think, if they're going to grind through a seven-game series against a, a team like Milwaukee, a team like Philadelphia, to bang with someone like Embiid or or Giannis. I really wish we could get an ESPN like outside the lines crew to just hang out with DeAndre Ayton for like the last week 
and find out how he's really feeling about not only the drug suspension, which is kind of tarnishing his name for all time, but also just getting completely swagger jacked by Aaron Baines. I mean, doesn't that force Phoenix into a pretty interesting situation once he's back and off his suspension? I mean, I don't see any way Aiton is going to be giving you more effective minutes than what Baines has been giving here over the last couple of weeks. And so now you're in this situation where like your franchise center has been displaced by a complete journeyman who happens to fit better and do the little things that Phoenix needs done. Uh, and they're rolling from a, a momentum and winning standpoint. Uh, Monty Williams, that one's going to be a, a real juggling act here, you know, coming up down the road. We'll see how that unfolds. Um, I like your idea on the defensive big uh, acquisition front. Um, I also think that, you know, it is one uh, a natural overreaction for someone like me when they lose Horford and Baines I wrote them off basically instantly because I was like, that's just too much defensive talent going out the the window. They're not going to have the pieces to replace them. Uh, when you get to the postseason matchups, uh, they're going to be exploitable. And, uh, you know, basically, you know, sayonara Celtics was sort of my, uh, you know, personal opinion. Now, I think that filling that hole is actually easier than it might seem, right? Like if you're, if you're looking for sort of league average, you know, defensive players, um, you, you've already put some you know names out there of guys who are probably a little bit better than league average at that spot. There should be guys who you can go out there and make a move. And so I guess it comes down to Boston's uh, you know willingness to accelerate things again, right? Or are they going to try to play it for the future? I guess I'm curious, where do you look at them in terms of the life cycle? Like if you're the Celtics front office um, and the Kyrie experiment kind of blew up. You know, you didn't get Anthony Davis. Uh, you, you didn't get, you know, uh, Kevin Durant as part of some like superstar pairing. You got passed over a little bit by those A-list guys, but you've got a good core group here of young talent plus Kemba, who's hungry, as you described. Like, should their mindset be like contention or bust this year? I mean, are you kicking it forward to next year? Is there a reason to believe that they're going to be in a better position uh, in the future, I, I guess what I'm asking is how much is win now versus how much is natural building, knowing that Jalen's contract, uh, you know, is already going to be on the books for next season, and then you're going to have to pay Tatum an arm and a leg going forward too. Like, how much urgency should there be? Yeah, I think that's that's been an important question in Boston for, I guess you know, since Isaiah Thomas sent them into the playoffs a few years back you know are you straddling you're straddling these two different timelines which one do you want to go in the direction of and you know they've had a lot of success in free agency but they're not going to be cap players going forward with Jalen Brown's extension kicking in with Jason Tatum presumably getting a max extension next year Kemba Walker's maxed out Gordon Hayward is getting paid a lot of money uh, next season, assuming he opts into his contract. And then you have to worry about, you know, what's going on with him after that. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's a little tricky for this team to, uh, for any team, I think right now to, to think about the future too much when the present is here for the taking, there's no obvious team at the top of the league uh, I don't know if the Celtics, you know, I think the Celtics would be wise to build around what they have with this core as best they can through the draft and, you know, hope that someone like Carson Edwards pops or Grant Williams pops or Romeo Langford is an actual player 
And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it, this is all moot if Jason Tatum is not a perennial all-star, if Jalen Brown does not live up to his contract, um, if Kemba Walker stagnates or, or, or dips in production, you're in big trouble. So <clears throat> I think that, you know, a, a, a win now move wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world. Um, that said, it, it's again, it's really difficult for this team to 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 be super aggressive, uh, given that the the contracts that they have on the roster are not supremely tradable. No, I hear you. And I think maybe you saw enough from Hayward in the first month to say back off like the dump Hayward idea. Like I know that was kind of floating out there for a while of like, if you could just get out of his contract, everything else loosens up a little bit, but uh, maybe thinking has changed there. I don't know. How do you feel? How impressed were you by his start? I would be shocked if they moved him. And before the season began, I was pretty optimistic about him bouncing back uh, in terms of his health. I did not expect him to look as good as he did just in terms of his comfort and just his fluidity on the floor on both ends. Uh, He looked like the guy who was as athletic in Utah when he was an all-star three years ago or two years ago or whenever that was. Um, that I did not expect to see. And he's someone who can play a lot of different positions on both ends. And so I I don't think they're going to be looking to move him, even though you might not be getting the most value on a max deal or as much value as you thought you were going to get when you initially signed him. I I just don't see them moving on from that contract. And he compliments everybody on the roster really well. Uh, So, you know, you sign Marcus Smart to his deal. That's a value contract. And you hope that you get production out of the youngsters and you kind of just go from there. No, I think um, after this conversation, first of all, I learned a lot about the Celtics. Second of all, it, they all that information just confirmed that as of right now, they're a cute story. You know, it's my favorite little like, you know, <laughs> uh, thing to dismiss my, my favorite dismissive terminology, but they need to make a move here at the deadline, right? Let's, let's gas up and do this because you're making a good point. They can compete with pretty much everyone in the East. I think besides Milwaukee, uh, they've got, you know, a core group here of the young guys who are going to be brighter in the future, no doubt, but are also still pretty good right now. And if Hayward comes back, I, I do think that he lifts their ceiling up pretty considerably if he continues to play like he did to start the season. And I'm not sure why he wouldn't, um, you know, he was, that player beforehand he's in his prime uh he looked healthy uh he's a smart team-based player he's got a coach who understands his strengths puts him in position to succeed uh, and he's you know surrounded by like-minded teammates where there doesn't really seem to be any clashes right now so all of that points positively i just think they've got to make a move i hope they do uh because i think it would make the eastern conference uh significantly more entertaining and um i'm kind of curious to see you know what prompts it you know like is there is there something either another month of continued strong play or maybe some wobbles on the defensive end uh, or something else i'm not considering that that kind of uh, you know convinces them to like go out there and uh, you know be hunters because when i look at just kind of the trade landscape uh, i think boston should be at or near the top of that list you know in terms of teams that are aggressively looking to upgrade and trying to make some noise right now i just think it would be such a fascinating you know, it's almost like the Washington Nationals, you know, making the deep run without Bryce Harper, right? Like if you do that immediately after Kyrie leaves, 
Like, isn't that the ultimate validation for everything your front office and coaching staff has tried to pitch here for the last like 10 years? I mean, the stuff that just makes me nauseous, I always refer to it as the green beer and, and all that. But <laughs> I mean, that would be a huge statement. Uh, and I do think that that would lift them up into a different uh, category as a franchise here in, in, in terms of being a destination for guys. Uh, but maybe I'm getting too far ahead of myself. No, I, I totally get that line of thinking. I feel like there are a lot of teams that will be at the trade deadline either making a move to buy and get into the playoffs uh, if you're in the Western Conference or maybe in the 9-10 range in the East and a little bit delusional um, or even a team that uh, you know has their sights on a championship. We're going to have more teams this year than at any point in the past five years at least, probably longer than that, that believe that they can actually win it all. And so, uh, you know, there are only so many, you know, you, if you talk to anyone around the league, as I'm sure you have, there's, they'll tell you that there's only so many win-now players who are available at any trade deadline. And so the Celtics are going to, I mean, just because you want Tristan Thompson or you want Derek Favors does not mean that uh, you value them the same way that the New Orleans Pelicans or the Cleveland Cavaliers do. So it's really tricky to actually execute a trade that makes sense for you. Uh, in the present and the future, and that's probably going oh, to be a no. roadblock that I, they that they. I run can't into. handle it. I can't handle another chapter of oh, Danny Ainge's <laughs> near misses. Oh my God, we almost had Justice Winslow. Still talking about that one five years later. All right, uh, we are going to shift gears and talk about another team that uh, figures prominently in the Eastern Conference at the top of the standings. But before we do that, we've got a quick message from Musician. Did you know that as many as 7 out of 10 adults wish they played a musical instrument? Unfortunately, many never do because they think it's either too late for them to start, too expensive, or they feel like they don't have the time. Musician is an online music education platform that's rethinking the way people learn music. It's the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, or even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician's award-winning technology actually listens to you play and gives real-time feedback on timing and accuracy. No need for chords or special equipment. With Musician, you'll learn to play your favorite songs faster than ever and have fun doing it. So if you've been waiting to learn an instrument or simply want some help getting back to playing, check out Musician. You can get an extended 14-day free trial of their Premium Plus package at musician.com slash play. That's unlimited lessons and unlimited songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash play to start your free trial today. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash play check it out and look this is completely anecdotal but my dad has taken up playing the ukulele uh, at, at this point of his life loves it uh, it's a big party hit people are always like, giving him compliments for his fantastic ukulele play so you know get on his level level up to go to musician.com uh, and try it out all right michael it's time to talk about the philadelphia 76ers we got a panicky email from luke in new zealand shout out to the open floor globe covering every continent Luke writes, I am writing as an angry and frustrated 76ers fan. I need answers. After a 5-0 start, Philadelphia has slipped to just 7-5. They came into the league this season projected to be a tier of their own with the Bucks as the only two contenders in the East. So far, 
Uh, we have not only fallen behind, but teams like the Celtics, the Heat, and the Raptors have exceeded all expectations and are looking like much more genuine title contenders than my Sixers. To me, I see three major problems. One, our three-point game is weak. Two, we seem to forget how to play good basketball in the fourth quarter or in the final moments of games. Three, bad discipline. We foul a lot, and we are the league worst in turnovers per game at 30th. So, Michael, you could hear Luke's self-diagnosis. It's like he's walking into the ER with his arm you know, falling off, and he's pretty sure he's got a broken arm, but he needs you to confirm it. Um, are these the same issues that you're seeing with the Philadelphia 76ers so far? And are, you know, fans like Luke and other media analysts maybe overreacting to some of the trouble that uh, Philadelphia has had here in the first month of the season? I, I understand the need to feel like the sky is falling uh, for a team that had some splashy moves over the summer and brings back Joel Embiid and uh, and Ben Simmons and those guys should be really hungry given the way that their season ended and they've been basically the same players that they were last year which is not very encouraging. Um, I mean, I'm. I think that th- this team needs time. I mean, what you have here is a situation where the regular season exists for experimentation for chemistry building for guys to understand each other's tendencies it's a little awkward so far with um with Joel Embiid playing with Al Horford and Simmons and the spacing and they're posting up a ton and driving lanes do not exist and it's a really mucky offense that you know if you watch yesterday's game against the uh or Sunday's game against the Cleveland Cavaliers you're able to post up and dominate and have no problem but against the best of the best that's going to be an issue uh so I mean the the issues that I've seen with this team so far have existed you know, ever since they've risen to the a level of respectability. Uh, and right now, you know, they're trying to figure out how to replace uh, all the good that J.J. Redick gave you and all the good that Jimmy Butler gave you down the stretch last season and, and in the playoffs. And that's going to take some time. And I don't know... Uh, I, I look, like, the fit is... The fit, and you know, we just talked about trades with the Celtics. I think that the Sixers may be in need of a trade at some point down the line, just given how things are mashed together. But there's a lot of talent here. The defense, uh, when Embiid is on the floor uh, with Horford, is just—I mean—that it, it's a monster. Uh, no one can score on that team. A lot of talent on that end, and offensively, I—I—I I, I, I think that there's a lot of growing to do. Yeah, so some of this stuff was predictable, right? I mean, when you're looking at taking out Redick, who is your major space creator, you're taking out Jimmy Butler, who was your major late-game scoring playmaker, um, and then you're placing Tobias Harris, and I would say a different role uh, in terms of probably shifting him down a little bit in the bigger lineups. You're bringing in a new piece in Josh Richardson, so he's got an adjustment. Uh, you've got Horford on offense needing to adjust to playing with a uh, – you know, a ball dominant kind of centerpiece type center uh, in Embiid and also a point guard who just doesn't shoot at all from outside of basically, you know, like a six foot radius on the court. I mean, those are a lot of adjustments, right? So I definitely was expecting this to take a while for Philadelphia from an offensive standpoint. To me, it's still been worse than I expected. Um, Doesn't mean it's broken forever, 
Um, but it's not in a great spot and it's definitely not in a championship winning spot, you know, and, and even if they're making, you know, moderate gains, uh, I think you got real questions. Like, is this team going, going to be able to control the pace of play, dominate everything, be consistent on the defensive end and just turn it into a rock fight? Because if not, they're not going to be good enough to win the title. Um, so that's probably, you know, raising some eyebrows for Philly when you, when you have such a big summer and you're dreaming title, 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 right? Let's zero in on this, uh, Horford and Embiid pairing. Cause what exactly are you seeing between those two guys that's working well versus what's maybe not working right sort of on either side of the court, because that was their big, uh, you know, philosophical move, right? That was their zag. They're saying, we're going to go bigger than everyone. We're going to have two Giannis stoppers in the middle. Uh, we're going to control tempo. We're going to own the glass. We're going to have, you know, some high IQ players out there. Uh, we're going to just do something that no one else is really doing in the league right now. And, and you've seen some other teams try to, you know, go back to play big. I mean, LA, uh, the Lakers uh, are pretty big across their front line with guys like JaVale McGee, Anthony Davis, LeBron James, uh, and Dwight Howard coming off the bench. I mean, that's a pretty big front line too. So it's not like small ball continues to drive everything uh, in 2020. Uh, but Philadelphia definitely stands out from the pack. And I think it's because of those two centerpiece big guys. So what are you seeing that works? And what are you seeing that doesn't work? Well, just looking at the numbers with how Horford has played when he's beside me. I mean, look, the, the team has been okay, particularly defensively, as I already mentioned. They've been really good with those two on the court and like it way worse than the worst version of the New York Knicks when both of them sit, which has been an issue when Embiid is out, which has been frequent. And that's fine because it's the regular season and load management, et cetera, et cetera. But when I look at Horford, I mean, he's coming from a situation where he had the ball in his hands a lot. He had a lot of touches uh, around the elbow. He had post touches. Um, he would pick and pop a ton, uh, pick and roll a little bit in, in ways that, you know, he can't do beside Embiid. Uh, so that's been a huge adjustment for him. His usage is 12% when beside Joel Embiid in those minutes, and that is... I mean, that's just I, that's just not going to work long term. I, I don't think that I, I think that there might be a correlation. I can't prove this, but there might be a correlation between the fact that he's shooting 14 percent from the three point line and with not have and, and having such a low usage. You know, he's a yeah, rhythm. So, I mean, basically, if you're a 12, 12 uh, percent usage or whatever, 14 percent usage, like you're just a lamp out there. Right. Like you're not participating. You're just kind of st- you're, you know. Uh, your PJ your Tucker, furniture, your furniture yeah. or furniture. Yes, that is a much better uh, comparison. Um, so that's been not great for Al. And like I said, his role in Boston was just a lot larger and uh, I guess more significant offensively than it has been so far. And you see him play a lot better when Joel Embiid is not on the court beside him when he's at the five and he's surrounded by shooters and Ben Simmons and and playing off all of that. Um so that's what I've seen, you know, issues-wise, just offensively. Uh, you know, there was one play uh, in a recent game, I believe it was against the Oklahoma City Thunder, where Horford and Embiid both posted up at the exact same time on opposite blocks and called for the ball. And it's, it's something I've, I, I've never really seen before in an NBA game. It was very uncomfortable, and I believe that uh, the possession ended with a turnover. So uh, these things will hopefully unwrinkle themselves in time. And uh, if not, like they're just not going to win the championship. 
Yeah, and I think uh, it's also important to note right now they don't have a top 10 defense, right? So it may be working, but it's not working as well as I thought it was. When they got Horford, I just said, okay, pencil them in top two defense, right? Maybe somebody else like Utah or somebody just plays insane defense, and so they, they don't get that number one spot. But like that's where they should sort of be settling, especially when you've got so much length, athleticism across every single position. Uh, and they haven't played, you know, fully to, to stuff on that end. So that's uh, concerning to me too. And I guess it goes back to the consistency factor with Embiid and then just kind of like the general questions about Simmons where some nights he looks absolutely ridiculous and amazing and like, you know, a future top 10 player and other nights, you know, he's just driving everyone crazy with, you know, some of his shot selection, uh, you know, just refusal to, to take certain shots. And I guess on that point, um, you know, we did get a question here uh, from Oliver. He writes, Brett Brown should fine Ben Simmons $1,000 per game unless he misses at least one three-pointer. Maybe that's an insignificant amount to an NBA player, but they got to try something to get this guy to shoot more. He's a talented player, but he will never reach his full potential, and his weakness can be greatly exploited when it matters most. So I actually just appreciate this idea from Oliver because my parents had tried to use this on me when I was in middle school, you know, I was like playing up on a, a better team with older guys. And so I was deferring too much and they were like, you know, Hey, every time you take a shot, we'll give you a dollar. doesn't matter if you make it. <laughs> um, so I like that Ben Simmons max level player, uh, is getting the same motivation, motivational strategy from Oliver. But I do think that, you know, we're talking about Philly spacing issues and, and guys being on the block and this sort of being like, an Elton brand, like late nineties experiment at times. Uh, does Simmons just compound everything though? Like how much of this is at his feet? I've defended him as much as I can these last couple of years, but I love, you know, first of all, I appreciate greatness. I'm a win connoisseur. Um, I love to see self-improvement guys like Pascal Siakam and Giannis. They appeal to my heart because of how much they work to make themselves as good as they possibly can be. And with Simmons, there's so much raw talent there. There's so much, you know, quote unquote, God-given ability. He was so NBA ready at an early age in high school. The steps that I anticipated that he would make from the first time I saw him when he was 17 or 18 to where he is right now, whatever, five years later, uh, have really left me wanting, you know, and it would really frustrate me if I was a Sixers fan or if I was in their front office or if I was their coaching staff, because I mean, clearly they know his weaknesses, right? It, it doesn't work if your point guard's afraid to shoot all the time from anywhere outside of five feet. You're going to have to address that to some degree. And I'm sure they've brought it up. You know, I'm sure it's a sensitive subject and they just haven't gotten anywhere. At the end of the day, he's got to shoot. That's just like what it is. Um, you know, you see him in warmups before uh, it, they'll, they'll show videos and clips of him pre-game shooting corner threes drilling eight nine in a row I mean the guy just needs to shoot the ball because what you have instead is the crux of his fit with Embiid where Embiid is shooting more threes than ever before and he's making them now which is like that's that's great um, at a career high rate but like at the end of the day what you what you need is like Embiid is your best player so everyone around uh, everyone around him needs to serve him and his game in some way. And instead, what you have is Joel serving Simmons because Simmons has this fatal flaw. And that's just it, it, that that's not a, a recipe for success long term. And so, you know, well, put put a finer point on it. Would you just trade Simmons? 
I mean, and it, it doesn't have to be at the deadline. Maybe it's next summer. Like, how much more leash do you give this pairing, given what you've described as the tension that's, you know, arising from Simmons's fatal flaw? I think that if you lose in the if you don't make it to the conference finals obviously uh this year then there's going to be a major shakeup. i don't think that that would surprise anybody um I th- beyond brett brown no longer being the coach uh you know heads will roll and i, I think i just don't think fundamentally that you can build uh uh i think that it's very difficult to build a championship winning t- team around the Simmons uh Embiid pairing and they they were very close last year you know they they could have easily won that series against the Raptors in round two and then who knows what happens after that you catch a couple breaks um but you had Jimmy Butler you don't have Jimmy Butler anymore and uh I just think that there are a lot of issues with with these two together spacing wise and right now they're off their best offense happens you know they get a stop which is their strength defense they get a stop they push they find a mismatch on the other end they post it and they work from there and that's just not gonna be a functional approach in the playoffs it just isn't so I don't know what you trade Simmons for I I think you wait a little bit uh I, I would probably wait the rest of the season unless this this you know continues on looking as clunky and as ugly as it as it has. Um, I can't see them making a trade before this year's deadline. I feel like that would be pretty drastic, and I don't know what team out there values Simmons uh, more than the Sixers do. So uh, if they if they struggle at the end of the year in the playoffs this season, I I, I do not see them. I do not see Simmons and Embiid continuing on as teammates. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think there's a lot of teams that would value Simmons uh, as highly or or even potentially more highly than the Sixers as soon as this deadline. Just because I think if he is a team's best player and he's not in a situation where he's clashing with a player like Embiid, I think a lot of things open up, right? Like you could play uh, spread lineups around him, right? If you can get like a, you know, basically four out around Simmons and he's just attacking downhill constantly uh, and you're playing at a super, super high tempo and you're basically, you know, forging a team in his identity, that team could be really fun. It could be a lot better than half the teams in the Eastern Conference right now. Uh, it would sell a lot of tickets. He would be a huge star. He would sell jerseys and people would talk about his shooting less, right? Uh, I think he's kind of in a certain way set up for failure, uh, you know, given the expectations in Philadelphia and given the the fitting uh, with MB. Now, does that mean Philadelphia should absolutely pull the plug as soon as possible? No, I'm kind of with you. I think they're going to at least play out this season, but I think whenever they decide to trade him, they'd be able to get a lot for him. And I think there would be a lot of organizations that don't have that franchise player who would kind of circle Simmons and say, man, like we'd be in a lot better place, you know, both financially, but also just like organization direction standpoint, uh, if we had him as the main guy. Like imagining Simmons in the exact same scenario that Giannis is in, it's a little unfair. Right. To, it's a little unfair to him, but, you know, aesthetically, Put him with someone like Brooke Lopez, a five who strictly shoots threes very well, spaces the floor, and then everybody else who, you know, has gravity and let him go downhill, let him use his vision, his passing ability, which is transcendent, which is great. Um, and that's kind of his situation. That, that That's his best situation. But 
you know, Embiid takes up a lot of space in the paint, or at least he should on the block, and having Embiid space really mitigates his greatest strength. I mean, you set a cross screen for him on the block and throw it to him and let him go to work one-on-one without help. I mean, he's as unstoppable as any player in basketball. So that's what they should be doing because that is the, the, the apex of their offense, and they can't really do it because Simmons is Simmons. He can't, he can't shoot the basketball, and he refuses to. Yeah, I mean, if I am like Minnesota, New York, Chicago, Cleveland, Charlotte, I mean, basically any of those teams – like I, who knows what package you're going to put together to really get Philadelphia excited, but would you rather have your current roster and its five-year future going forward, or would you rather have Simmons, uh, you know, as a centerpiece that you're building around? Um, and you know, he could work with a player like Towns really well to me because Towns is just more of a natural, you know, spread five. He's doing more of that. Uh, he's out of the paint. You know, Simmons would have more room to operate. Uh, I think that one would actually work better than, you know, the, the Embiid pairing. But even if you didn't have a high level center, even if you just had, you know, like we mentioned earlier, like an Aaron Baines, who's comfortable being out of the way and will set some screens for you um, and, you know, won't crimp what your best players want to do and will actually kind of maybe make them better uh, in certain situations by doing the little things. I think he'd be better off. Uh, it'll be something to watch here. Like at some point, if you're Simmons, like, doesn't this get in your head, you know, like, aren't, aren't you feeling like you're getting blamed? Aren't you feeling like your fatal flaw, which you have to know deep down as a flaw, uh, is going to make you a scapegoat in Philadelphia. I would be, if I were him, I'd be kind of sick of Embiid kind of getting all of the attention and sort of being that, uh, you know, main guy. I think that's a pretty common, you know, ego battle. I'm just saying from my perspective, I'm not saying he feels that right now. Uh, but to me, there, there's just a lot of things that could potentially go wrong for Philadelphia here uh, if they don't get back to consistently winning games and to kind of putting their stamps on games and, and playing better defense and sort of, I guess, you know, realizing Elton Brand's offseason vision. So we'll see how it plays out by the deadline. But certainly to me, uh, a team to watch as well, uh, both in February and going forward into next summer. All right, before we shift gears to take more questions from the Open Floor Globe, we've got one more ad to get through. Um, it is from Health IQ. Do you average eight hours of sleep per night? Do you eat a quality plant-based diet? Are you exercising four or more times per week? Well, check, check, and check for me personally. Basically, you're doing everything right if you're doing those things to ensure you live a long life. Isn't it time you get financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Introducing Health IQ. Health IQ uses science data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. If you're a runner or a cyclist, or you're into CrossFit or another type of athletic activity, even if you're just a committed weekend warrior, you might be a vegetarian or a vegan, you deserve to be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates. Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risks for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. Health IQ is not just a lead generator. They take the customer through the entire process of applying for life insurance, and the policy is underwritten by one of um, our top officials. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com floor to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending on your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums 
compared to other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash floor. Let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to healthy living. One more time, healthiq.com slash floor, healthiq.com slash floor. All right, Michael, we got uh, enough of the Easter conference. Let's let's shift to the show where the Portland Trailblazers made splashy headlines last week by signing Carmelo Anthony, future Hall of Famer. Oh, yeah, this is the big time. Guaranteed contract. (laughs) (laughs) Look, game changing move by the Blazers. Ty from Adelaide writes, now that Carmelo has signed with the Blazers, can we speculate on how useful he is going to be? Will Melo provide a role player boost similar to what we've seen from Dwight Howard on the Lakers? Or is all hope lost for the future Hall of Famer? Great question from Ty. So, Michael, I ask you, uh, you know, scale of 1 to 10, how big of a deal is Carmelo's return to the NBA after more than a year away from basketball? I put it at like a 2, maybe. Is that too harsh? Uh, 1.5 or 2 seems about right. I mean, I think it's really important to keep uh, expectations in check here. The reason why I say that. Not only has he been away from basketball for a long time, but he was pretty horrible at Houston. And uh, I mean, I think people tend to focus on the offensive fit stuff, how he's going to work offensively. But like, if you are the worst or one of the worst defensive players in the entire league, the offensive fit stuff is really hard to even you know begin to broach, right? Because you're putting him out there. And to me in Houston, he looked like he was in quicksand. I thought he was giving decent effort, but the quickness wasn't there laterally. He doesn't really have a good position to cover. I guess he's a power forward. You can pick on him in terms of, you know, switches and pick and rolls. He's not going to be able to cover guards basically at all. Uh, he's not a high impact, you know, defensive rebounder in terms of you know, being, being able to get balls in traffic. Uh, he's not a shot blocker by any stretch of the imagination. He's not like a vertical threat. So, I mean, you can nitpick like, you know, his hat collection or his personality or his ego and all that stuff. And I think people tend to be drawn to those kinds of criticisms. But I think the fundamental criticism that's going to matter for Portland, who's got a pretty bad defense right now and has struggled out of the gate, is that Melo doesn't play any defense whatsoever. And if you put him out there alongside Hassan Whiteside, oh my gosh, that could get ugly really quick. Yeah, that's uh, that's not what Neil O'Shea was uh, thinking about when he put this team together. I mean, Zach Collins, uh, you know, when he was on the floor before he got hurt, their defense was pretty solid, um, and, and in some lineups, very effective. Uh, like the down, the drop from from that to, or even from you know Aminu from the past few seasons and Harkless and those guys down to. Uh, to Mello, who, you know, yeah, he's probably he's. It's safe to call him the worst defender in basketball. I mean, I th- I feel like the 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 impact of something like that individually will not be as glaring in the regular season. Just when you know teams kind of coast from game to game, night to night, without a particular. Uh, you know, teams will attack him for sure, uh, particularly in crunch time. But, you know, we assume that he will not be on the floor in crunch time. So that won't be an issue. But it's more like in the playoffs when, you know, possession to possession, you are uh, a, a glaring uh, spot, uh, a glaring spot on the other team that can be attacked. And I think that'll be the more painful part. And, you know, we assume that offensively he will be 
the guy who uh, you know shined in the Olympics and only took spot up threes, spaced the floor, could get you a bucket late in the shot clock if necessary, would post a little bit to draw two. I I mean that's a big assumption. I Lord knows how he's going to play and whether or not his ego is in check. He said all the right things, um, but he's coming into a situation where. Uh, you know, this team needs a lot of help in a lot of different areas. And uh, he sees himself, I would assume, as a scorer and one of the better scorers in the league. Uh, and he's not even close to that. So I think it'll be a really, uh, like, I just don't, I don't see him being on the Portland Trailblazers in April. Like, I, 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 I his non-guaranteed contract is non-guaranteed for a reason. And we'll, I guess we'll see how long it lasts. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of cringeworthy. I think you're right. He would get attacked more in the playoffs, but he's going to have to make it to the playoffs first, right? And I think that's kind of an open question. When I look at uh, his offensive game, well, first of all, the Dwight Howard comparison, I think it falls flat for a little bit. First of all, Dwight Howard has done like a 180 on his mental uh, approach in terms of his willingness to be a role player and to be a good teammate. It's crazy to see. I... Like, you know, basically like rub my eyes every single night. I I still don't believe it, but he's consistently done it game after game here to start the season. It does feel like he's got a new chapter in his career and uh, it's working out for him. But it's not just a mental side for Dwight. He's in ridiculously good shape. And I don't know where that came from either. And he is able to, uh, in a lot of situations, either, you know, compete for tough rebounds in the paint. Uh, you know, chase loose balls. Like physically, he's moving really well, better than he has in recent years, uh, certainly when he was injured. And I think losing a lot of weight, you know, really did help him. Uh, I think both of those aspects are critical to Dwight's success here to start the season. And I think with Carmelo Anthony, I actually have fewer questions about his makeup and his mentality because the people in Houston said it was fine. Obviously, it was an issue in Oklahoma City because uh, he wanted to start and he wanted to close games and they, you know, they uh, agreed to allow him to start kind of at their own detriment throughout that season. And then in the playoffs, they finally, at the very end of it, didn't close games with Mello and, and he took it pretty, uh, you know, personally, uh, as any competitor and, and future Hall of Famer would. Um, I think he's gotten over some of that stuff, but it, it just comes back to the body and the skill set for me. Offensively, he just misses a lot of shots and, uh, you know, he takes tough shots and that's not really that helpful. Portland does need a release valve offensively. I mean, Lillard and McCollum have both been getting, you know, pressured a lot. McCollum hasn't started the season that well. I think he will play better. So that should actually, you know, make Lillard's life a little bit easier when he gets back up to his normal standard. Uh, so there is, you know, some need for someone like Melo to do, to you know, to provide perimeter shooting that, Anthony Tolliver, Mario Hazonia, those types of guys can't bring to the table. Uh, but is it going to overwhelm and uh, kind of like compensate for his other weaknesses, whether it's, you know, the limited playmaking ability and whether it's the the defensive, uh, you know, issues kind of across the board and whether it's just kind of his general mobility? Uh, I think that, you know, really remains to be seen. I think the Blazers coming up here are going to play the Milwaukee Bucks this week if Melo is in the lineup I just encourage everyone pray for Melo okay because uh, <laughs> Giannis is a different 
beast right now. And I think that that could get ugly if they're getting matched up. Uh, I don't know. I, I hear what you're saying about people not being targeted and everything like that. But if I was Milwaukee, it's like, let's see if Giannis can score 100 tonight. Like, how could that go? That that could be a good headline for us. I, f- uh, I, I feel like this analysis is insulting to Terry Stotts, who will obviously not play Carmelo Anthony at the same time as Giannis Antetokounmpo would I, be. I, I, well, I'm just saying it's hard to hide him. You can't hide him forever, right? Like sure. if he's if you're if you're bringing him in, you have to give him minutes because they're getting nothing from that spot, right? And then once he's on the court, to me, it's just like this ominous countdown. It's like you know the shark movies where the the piano and the music starts to play, and it's like dun 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 dun, you know, like that. That's how I feel <laughs> when Melo is on the court because it's just like a countdown to when people are going to exploit him. That sounds rude. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. The countdown towards inevitable slaughter. A little rude, but. Um, but yeah, glad you're with me <laughs> but yeah i mean the other thing that i'll just throw in here that might be an obtuse point but uh do you really want carmelo anthony taking shots from someone like anthony simons like I, I i just don't know at the end of the day what the uh what the net positive effect is of having him on the floor let alone the uh, you know, there. This we're not covering the NFL, and this is not you know first take. But you know, there are off-court distractions that happen in terms of just general media coverage and having to answer questions about him every day. If you're CJ, or if you're Dame, or if you're Coach Dots, like I, I feel like that that is a factor that we we can't really quantify. Um, I don't know how you feel about that as a as, as something. Well, I think Portland did try to telegraph that aspect of it by like really highlighting the non-guaranteed nature of his deal. Usually that's not how these kinds of uh, news stories come out because it's kind of a slight to the player, right? And so mm-hmm. usually you just say, oh yeah, we're signing him, right? Um, I think the emphasis on that non-guaranteed part was to sort of send a coded message to the rest of the league and to the Blazers fans. It's like, guys, don't worry. We are prepared to pull the plug if this does not work. We are going to bounce. Uh, just have a little faith. We're that desperate. And uh, I think it's you know surprising how quickly Portland reached that position, given they were in the Western Conference Finals last year. Uh, but you know, then again, I mean, look at Golden State. They made the finals, and they're in an even worse spot because of injuries. So you know, fortunes can change. Uh, and I think ultimately, like this Carmelo thing is going to be kind of a blip and, and we're going to, you know, we're going to move on and, and Portland, their season's not going to be determined by this move. Uh, to me, a bigger factor is, you know, when does CJ McCollum get right? And then are they able to find anyone to take Hassan Whiteside at the trade deadline? And then when does Nurkic come back? I think those are the factors that are ultimately going to determine Portland's success. Uh, and we'll see how that plays out. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. 
You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. All right, let's switch gears here because we did have, uh, you know, some reasonably big news here in Los Angeles over the weekend. Paul George returned, made his home debut. Uh, His first game was in New Orleans. He had 33 points. His second game was at home. He had 37 points against the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, He basically could not miss a shot. He was moving well. After the game, everyone wanted to know the the secret to his success, his incredible scoring outbursts in uh, limited minutes. And Paul George said, frankly, look, I've got new shoulders. I haven't felt this good in a long, long time. Immediately, the take cannons, uh, you know, started coming my way. We got Jamar from Instagram who, who wrote in to say, if PG is fully healthy like this, he is the best player on the Clippers. He's a serious MVP and Defensive Player of the Year candidate. You could say he has enough ability to be a more complete player than Kawhi offensively, and they have the same defensive tenacity. Plus, Paul George will probably stay healthier. What is your take? So I throw this one to you, Michael. Um you know, clearly Paul George kind of had a dream start after not playing basketball for six months. And the last time he was on the court, Damian Lillard was draining a 35-footer in his eyeball, and he had to call it a bad shot afterwards. So this was a great way to turn the page, start a fresh chapter uh, for his time with the Clippers. Uh, are you buying what Jamar is selling? What is Paul George's ceiling relative to Kawhi Leonard? Uh, I think that Kawhi is uh, the best player in the world and has been for a while. So I'm not going to go there with you. I mean, if Paul George is uh, able to sustain a 47% usage and an 80% true shooting percentage, then like by all means, like bow down, he's better than Michael Jordan. But uh, no, I think Ka- <laughs> I think Kawhi is. Uh, he, I mean, he's just proven it in the playoffs, time and time again. He's unstoppable in the mid range in ways that pa- even Paul George is not. And I, I mean, it's really it's a kind of a, a a tricky situation when you compare superstars. I mean, Paul George finished third in MVP last year. He was tremendous. He does so many things complimentary. Uh, to his teammates. He moves off the ball so well. He can score in so many different ways. Uh, but I just, I, I, I don't agree with that at all. I think Kawhi, when he is at his best, is the best that basketball has right now. Um, so yeah, there, that's where I stand on that. But uh, is is that is that uh, a hot take or is that a safe take? What is your, uh, what is your read on that? No, I'm basically with you. I think Kawhi, in the conversation for best player to me, it's like Kawhi, LeBron, uh, and Giannis, I do think that Paul George has to kind of earn his way into it. But I think people overlook Paul George's regular season last year, probably because it happened in Oklahoma City, probably because, you know, there was real doubts about, you know, is Westbrook going to hold him back or are they going to, you know, hit a wall in the postseason yet again? Uh, and Paul George was unconscious at times last season. He's in his prime. He does look healthier. He's moving well. Obviously, I think he's got to get up to speed defensively. He said that. Doc Rivers has said that. Uh, but his game is so flexible. And eventually the Clippers will finally put out a lineup that has both Kawhi Leonard uh, and Paul George in it at the same time. And I am really, really interested to watch how does this little like alpha battle unfold, right? Because when Paul George was out injured to start the season, the whole team was in Kawhi's image, right? Like he's running everything. He's taking every shot late. He's got the ball in his hands. Uh, he's playmaking a lot. You know, he's you know doing the the point Kawhi stuff that we had never really seen on such a level before. And it's like the Kawhi show. 
when Kawhi is out and Paul George is back, it was amazing how quickly it became just the Paul George show. He was bringing the ball up the court, just walking into off the dribble three pointers, you know, banging them left and right, you know, scoring at will, getting into the paint, drawing fouls, like looking like he could run his own team at a very high level, like anywhere in the league, right? Um, it's a unique combination of talents, you know, two premier two way wings on the same team. We haven't seen that in decades. Uh, but you now also have two guys who are basically at their offensive peaks in my mind, right? Like they've discovered new mm-hmm. layers to their games they didn't have before. And they're doing it in an environment where they have a lot of offensive talent around them. So they're in position to succeed. This should all point towards a devastating and incredible offense where like they're just they have this effortless interplay and they're just taking turns like sniping and killing teams. I'm just curious, like, do you think it's going to work out that way? Or are there possible hiccups, uh, you know, between those two guys? I mean, I think that there there could be hiccups at the start, but generally speaking, the way that both are so difficult to deal with off the ball, I mean, Kevin Arnovitz uh, wrote this incredible piece before the season about how Los Angeles's coaches would draw actions for Kawhi and Paul George. And I mean, when you have one, when you have, uh, let's you have the ball in Kawhi's hands, you know, you're running Paul George off flares on the weak side and you're running Kawhi in a pick and roll with Lou Williams or Montrez Harrell or whoever setting a ball screen. Like, I just don't know how you defend that. Uh, so like, there's a lot of different actions and everyone on this, that team is very smart. Everybody plays extremely hard. Uh, I think at the end of the day, it, there's a reason why they are the favorite, if there is any favorite to win the championship this season. And in crunch time, uh, you know, stopping Kawhi alone is almost impossible. And stopping him with Paul George already on the floor complimenting him, Paul George knocking down threes, attacking closeouts, uh, you know, he can run his uh, his own pick and rolls fine, better even than Kawhi potentially as a playmaker. Uh, so I think that, you know, the ceiling is very high offensively. And then if you look at just defensively, it's really scary. I, I mean, that's that's the, the side of the floor that I'm personally most uh, looking forward to seeing with, uh, you know, those two, Pat Beverly. I mean, it's just going to be a junkyard dog situation at like three of the five positions. And then Montrez Harrell's there as well. And it's just going to be really fun to see. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think... Uh the other layer to kind of put on top of this is just that Paul George has such a bigger personality, right? Like so much more charisma off the court, so much more star power. I mean, already we're seeing in these post-game press conferences where like, you know, Kawhi, as everyone knows, it's like kind of pulling teeth to get things out of him. I think he's actually been pretty open and honest this year by his standards, but it's still tough. I mean, Paul George comes out and there's that superstar moxie, that swagger uh, that, you know, we're accustomed to from sort of like top five, top 10 level players. He captures in a room in a way that Kawhi just doesn't. So again, uh, you know, if you're looking for ways that this can kind of go wrong, it's like these two guys have presented themselves as a united front. You know, they sit side by side in the locker room. Their locker rooms, uh, their lockers are adjacent. They've played up the the hometown angle. We're both, you know, relatable. They're both on their third teams. They both started in small markets. They were both kind of like you know, ten to fifteen, uh, you know, picks in the draft. They both improved a ton during their NBA career. They're kind of different players than they were uh, when they were kind of pre-draft prospects. So they have a lot in common and it should work. uh, But I mean, it's just so different. I want to see it. And that's kind of what I'm looking forward. It's one of the biggest stories I'm looking forward to here over the next two or three weeks. 
uh, in the NBA. It's it's kind of that partnership and and how they feel each other out to start. Uh, you know, their tenure together, uh, and then how it blossoms and how quickly they can get to sort of that undefeatable level that uh, that you're describing. All right, we got one last question to close it out. Michael, Sam writes. I just watched Luca dominate at Madison Square Garden and love him just as much as everyone else seems to. But we love rookies earlier in their career before public opinion turns on them due to shortcomings. Ben Simmons, who we mentioned earlier, was praised early on for many things that he does well, and even his lack of shooting was swept under the rug. People loved Blake Griffin, and then they said he had to develop an outside shot, which he ultimately did, and some people get on him now for being uh, too much of an outside player. If you've got those kinds of precedents with Ben Simmons and Blake Griffin getting criticism after being in the NBA a few years, is there anything in Luca's game that you think he will need to eliminate or change so that he can stave off an inevitable backlash? So what do you think, Michael? First of all, I think the inevitable backlash is called the inevitable backlash for a reason. Uh, I, you know, unless he wins a championship this season or next season, uh, and like carries the Dallas Mavericks on his back. I don't. I, this is just what happens with everybody. It's just the way that the society is and the way fandom works. Uh, I mean, Luca is. I was at that game at MSG. He was phenomenal. Um, he's been phenomenal all season long. And I mean, if I had to pick one particular part of his game that uh, people will point to if he struggles in the playoffs, it would probably be just defense because he's as complete offensively as anyone his age has looked maybe, I guess, since LeBron James was 20 years old in the NBA. So, uh, yeah, Luca is, uh, advanced beyond his years. And, uh, I, it's, it's really, it sucks, but people love to build someone up and then tear them down. That's just how, that's just how this works. It worked. It went, happened with, uh, with KD, with Anthony Davis, with just about any really mega talented uh, young star who did not win at the highest level uh, on his first contract. <laughs> that's that's basically how it works. Um, so uh, there will be backlash, uh, and I'm really yeah. Dreading he's going to get the same. Comes. He's going to get the same thing Harden got. You know, I mean, that's basically that's the blueprint, right? It's going to be picking on his defense. And then I think picking on how ball dominant he is and like, you know, if he happens to not be shooting the three pointer well and he's taking, you know, a lot of off the dribble threes, then people will say, oh, you know, his style of play holds his teammates back. I mean, I think those are going to be the knocks on Luca. I encourage everyone. And this is something that you can actually control because you can't control this overall narrative, as Michael is describing, of the building people up and tearing them down. What you can't control is your own personal appreciation and enjoyment in a player don't worry about what everyone else is going to be saying about Luca two years from now. Just watch Luca play basketball. This guy is absolutely phenomenal. He's really fun to watch. And the same thing goes for Trey Young. To me, I think we're in a situation, and I wrote about this for my post-up newsletter at the Washington Post, and you can find a link to it on my Twitter page. They're in round three right now. Round one was Luca versus Trey. Who do you want to pick in the draft? And obviously that, that prompted uh, a big-time trade that's going to be remembered forever. Round two was the rookie of the year race last year when Luca beats out Trey, but a lot of people were pretty excited about Trey coming on late and how well he was playing. To me, round three right now, it's the most improved player race. I mean, I would put Pascal in that race too and a few other players, but I think both Luca and Trey have to be in this most improved player conversation already. They're both top 10 in points and assists. They're both 
running their teams completely. Trey's doing it with one hand tied behind his back because of John Collins' suspension and because of all the injuries around him in Atlanta. Uh, Luca is, you know, integrating a new uh, sidekick in Chris Depp's Porzingis, who's maybe, uh, you know, disappointed some people in terms of, you know, the state of his game after so much time off, uh, not in a horrible way, but just maybe leaving people a little bit wanting. They've both just taken massive steps from year one to year two. If you go back and look at their numbers and, and everybody compared Luca to like, you know, LeBron James, next LeBron James during pre-draft uh, hype, right? Or poor man's LeBron James. His age 20 numbers are better than LeBron's age 20 numbers. Trey's numbers right now are better than any of Steph's numbers, who he got compared to, until Steph's first MVP season. Now, obviously, that's going to be influenced by pace and space, you know, the, the rising offense and, mm-hmm. and kind of style of play here these last couple of years. But no one would have believed that for either one of those guys, even the people who are hyping Luca and Trey, would not have gone that far out on a limb and said, look, they're going to have better numbers than these guys in year two at age 20. No one would have said that. So I think from that standpoint, shut out all the negative noise. Don't worry so much about Twitter. Trust your eyeballs. Trust your heart. Trust your gut. Enjoy watching these guys play. It's a massive story for the league that there's two playmakers who are linked by this trade who are you know rising so quickly and rising in tandem Um, and you know, there's going to be more rounds down the road. You know, these guys aren't going to be done. Even if one of them wins most improved player, there's going to be a more awards, bigger awards, postseason showdowns to come in the future. If they continue to keep growing like this, uh, and you'd love to see it. All right, Michael, we have reached the end of your first open floor spot. Thank you so much for joining me guys. If you want to interact with the show, please email us openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com we're also on apple Podcasts. you can find our page by searching for open floor that's two words once you get there scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word and keep us engaged i'm on instagram at ben.goliver and if you guys aren't following michael on twitter or instagram michael tell them where they can find you uh at twitter as at michael v pina p-i-n-a and i believe it's the same thing for instagram Perfect. Well, before next episode, we're going to confirm your Instagram handle. We'll get you up here, uh, get your clout chasing game on a higher level. We'll be ready to rock. All right, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Thanks for having me, Ben. Really appreciate it.